Welcome, everybody, to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The issue we're analyzing today is the atomic bomb. Since this is a long and complicated topic, I've broken down this episode into two parts. If you haven't already listened to part one, you should be ashamed. You should be listening to all of my episodes. All right, just kidding. But seriously, you should listen to part one. I would strongly recommend that you do so now because it provides all of the background material and context to the issues I will be discussing in this second part. Presuming that you've already listened to part one, let's go forward with part two of the atomic bomb. Here was the Japanese position in August 1945. Point number one, Japan's biggest strength at the beginning of the war was its navy, and now the Japanese navy was essentially gone. Conversely, by August 1945, the United States had the largest navy the world had ever seen. World War II was dominated by aircraft carriers. By August of 1945, the U.S. had 99 aircraft carriers. 71 of those were the smaller escort-type carriers, but there were also 28 of the large fleet carriers. The U.S. had complete control of the sea. As a result... The U.S. could attack wherever and whenever it wanted. The Japanese had a lot of soldiers stranded on various islands and at portions of the Asian mainland that they couldn't transfer to the home islands for defense because they simply had no way to move those men across the sea. The U.S. Navy was that dominant at that point. Point number two of the Japanese position. Japan was completely cut off from all military resources and was literally starving from a lack of food. Why was this? It's because the American Navy was incredibly successful in quarantining the Japanese home islands. The surface Navy and airplanes certainly helped isolate Japan, but U.S. submarines were the biggest factor in starving the Japanese. What the German U-boats failed to do to Britain, the American subs accomplished against the Japanese. The four main home islands of Japan do not have a lot of natural resources. The Japanese needed to import food as well as oil and most other materials necessary for their war effort. By the summer of 1945, they were not able to import enough to sustain the war or to feed the populace. Point number three about the Japanese position. The Americans had complete control of the skies over the Japanese home islands. The separate U.S. Air Force did not come into existence until 1947. During World War II, it was still called the Army Air Force. The U.S. Army Air Force could bomb any point in Japan with almost complete immunity. Point number four about the Japanese position. Added to this incredibly dire situation that the Japanese faced against the U.S. and the land battles going on in mainland Asia against the Chinese and the British... The Japanese just added a new enemy, the Soviet Union. The Red Army was enormous. And, as Stalin demonstrated in his four-year fight against Hitler, the Soviets were willing to sacrifice millions of men to achieve victory. And lastly, point number five. In addition to this incredibly bleak outlook, Japan's primary enemy, the U.S., had just unveiled the most devastating weapon in the history of the world, which could destroy entire cities with only one bomb. 
In part one of this episode, I explained to you the history of the Manhattan Project. In discussions of the atomic bomb, people often questioned the decision to use it. We'll get into whether or not it was a good idea or whether it was necessary in a little bit. But first, let's consider the decision to use the atomic bomb. In reality, there was no actual decision about whether to use the atomic bomb. It was always presumed that the bomb would be used as soon as it was ready. I'm not saying whether this was right or wrong. I'm just explaining that this was the thinking during World War II. By 1942, physicists understood that a nuclear chain reaction and an atomic bomb were not just theoretical, these things were possible. The belief from most of the people in charge of the Manhattan Project was that the bomb would be used on Germany as soon as it was ready. Fortunately for the Germans, they had been completely conquered by conventional military forces by May 1945, and the atomic bomb was not ready for use until July 1945. The Manhattan Project was so secret that when Harry Truman became president upon the death of Franklin Roosevelt on April 12, 1945, Truman did not even know that the U.S. had a nuclear weapons program. In fact, Truman was president for two weeks when he was finally informed of the existence of the Manhattan Project. The discussions were not whether to use the atomic bombs, but where and how to use them. In the early spring of 1945, General Leslie Groves created the Target Committee. The purpose of that committee was to develop recommendations on how to use the atomic bomb. This committee was not discussing whether to use it, just how to use it. The Target Committee also prepared a list of potential target cities. The successor of the Target Committee was the Interim Committee. That committee was made up mostly of civilians, but included Undersecretary of the Navy, Ralph Bard. The Interim Committee included a scientific panel, which included Robert Oppenheimer and Enrico Fermi. According to the notes from the June 1, 1945 meeting, the interim committee reached an agreement that the Secretary of War should be advised that, while recognizing that the final selection of the target was essentially a military decision, the present view of the committee was that the bomb should be used against Japan as soon as possible, and that it be used on a war plant surrounded by workers' homes, and that it be used without prior warning. As I said earlier, Undersecretary of the Navy Ralph Bard was a member of the interim committee. Later that month, Bard submitted a memorandum to the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, dated June 27, 1945. That memo read as follows. Ever since I have been in touch with this program, I have had a feeling that before the bomb is actually used against Japan, that Japan should have some preliminary warning for, say, two or three days in advance of use. The position of the United States as a great humanitarian nation and the fair play attitude of our people generally is responsible in the main for this feeling. During recent weeks, I have also had the feeling very definitely that the Japanese government may be searching for some opportunity which they could use as a medium of surrender. Following the three-power conference, emissaries from this country could contact representatives from Japan somewhere on the China coast and make representations with regard to Russia's position and at the same time give them some information regarding the proposed use of atomic power. 
together with whatever assurances the president might care to make with regard to the emperor of Japan and the treatment of the Japanese nation following unconditional surrender. It seems quite possible to me that this presents the opportunity which the Japanese are looking for. I don't see that we have anything in particular to lose in following such a program. The stakes are so tremendous that it is my opinion very real consideration should be given to some plan of this kind. I do not believe under present circumstances existing that there is anyone in this country whose evaluation of the chances of the success of such a program is worth a great deal. The only way to find out is to try it out. As far as I'm aware, there was no reply to Undersecretary of the Navy Bard to his proposal. It's unclear who read that memorandum other than the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. There's no written order from President Truman to drop the bomb. It appears that the thinking among government and military leaders at the time was that the atomic bomb was viewed like any other weapon. The president did not order the firebombing of Japanese cities. That was a military decision. Let's be clear. I am not saying that the atomic bomb was like other weapons. Obviously, it was not. All I'm saying is that the Truman administration and the American military viewed it as essentially the same as other available weapons. From what we know, the one issue where Truman involved himself regarding the use of the atomic weapons was exempting Tokyo and Kyoto as targets for the atomic bombs. This was for political reasons. Tokyo was the capital, and Kyoto had cultural connotations and historical significance as the prior capital of Japan. By this point, a list of target cities had already been prepared by the American military. They had been thinking ahead because the cities on this atomic target list had been excluded from the firebombing campaign. The thinking was that the total power of the atomic bomb would be demonstrated on an intact city. If the city had already been devastated by firebombing, then the Japanese might not be so impressed by the potential of the atomic bomb. I know this is a gruesome way to think, but in wartime, military and political leaders think in terms of the bottom line. What is the fastest and easiest way to conquer the enemy. The actual order authorizing the use of the atomic bomb is dated July 25, 1945 from the office of the Army Chief of Staff. It was signed by General Thomas Handy, Acting Chief of Staff, and was directed to General Carl Spotts, Commanding General of the U.S. Army Strategic Air Forces. General Handy was the acting chief of staff because the true army chief of staff, George Marshall, was out of the country at the Potsdam Conference in Germany. That July 25, 1945 order read in its most pertinent part, the 509 Composite Group, 20th Air Force, will deliver its first special bomb as soon as weather will permit visual bombing after 3 August 1945 on one of these targets, Hiroshima, Kokura, Niigata, and Nagasaki. The July 25 order also stated, additional bombs will be delivered on the above targets as soon as made ready by the project staff. Further instructions will be issued concerning targets other than those listed above. Before we explore 
Whether the atom bombs were necessary or even a good idea, we have to remember what the American military was facing in the summer of 1945. At the beginning of this podcast, I outlined the Japanese situation in August 1945. Even before the two atomic bombs were dropped, and even before the Soviet Union declared war on Japan, the Japanese situation was dire, to say the very least. So why were they continuing to fight? The Japanese refusal to surrender by July 1945, which was before the atomic attacks and the entry of the Soviets into the war, seemed completely irrational. The Japanese were continuing to fight during the summer of 1945 for two reasons. Number one, the psyche of the Japanese as individuals was that it was shameful to surrender and it was better to give your life in battle. Number two, the Japanese military and political leaders had always envisioned a negotiated settlement to any war with the United States. I'll discuss the refusal to surrender by individual Japanese soldiers later. But first, let's examine the goal of the Japanese government to reach a negotiated settlement to the war. When they bombed Pearl Harbor, the Japanese leaders knew that, even if everything went perfectly, the Pearl Harbor attack would not eliminate all military capacity of the U.S. The Japanese believed that if they crippled the Pacific Fleet, then the decadent, pleasure-seeking Americans would not want to fight and would simply negotiate a settlement. Obviously, the Japanese did not understand the American psyche. Before December 7, 1941, most Americans did not want to get involved in World War II, but the Pearl Harbor attack unified the U.S. with complete resolve to defeating Japan. The man who masterminded the Pearl Harbor attack was Japanese Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto. He had studied in the U.S. before the war. He studied English at Harvard, and he later served as the Japanese naval attache in Washington, D.C. Yamamoto understood America's industrial capabilities. He had recommended against the war with the U.S., but if his country was going to go to war against America, he would plan the best attack he could. Supposedly, Upon being congratulated by the incredible success of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Admiral Yamamoto replied, I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. That is a fabulous quote, and I really hope that he actually said it. But in reality, we have no written evidence that Yamamoto said those awesome words. The quote appeared in the 1970 film about the Pearl Harbor attack, Tora, Tora, Tora. In case you're wondering what that means in Japanese, Tora means tiger. It's what the Japanese pilots said over the radio when they first attacked Pearl Harbor. Tora was the code word to the rest of the Japanese Navy that they had achieved complete surprise on the Americans. Anyway, we don't have any written records that Admiral Yamamoto gave that superb quote about awakening a sleeping giant. The day after the Pearl Harbor attack, FDR went before Congress on December 8 and asked for a declaration of war against Japan, but only against Japan. They were the only country that had attacked America. Three days later, on December 11, 1941, Hitler remarkably declared war on the U.S., 
He was not bound to do so as part of his alliance with Japan. The Japanese had not coordinated their attack on America with any forewarning to the Nazis. Anyway, Hitler declaring war on the U.S. meant that America was now involved in the war in Europe as well as the Pacific. Fun fact, Hitler only declared war on one country, the United States. He went to war with plenty of other countries, but never formally declared war on them. He simply attacked without warning Poland, Czechoslovakia, Denmark, Norway, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Belgium, France, Britain, Greece, Yugoslavia, Egypt, and even a country with whom he had a peace treaty, the Soviet Union. Historians still debate why Hitler declared war on the U.S. Most think it was his worst mistake of World War II, even worse than invading the Soviet Union. If Hitler had not declared war on the U.S., it would have been tough for FDR to send the huge amounts of military supplies to Britain and the USSR to keep those two countries from collapsing. The American people would have demanded all of America's military effort be directed against Japan. Once Hitler declared war on the United States, American military planners agreed with their British counterparts that Germany was the much bigger threat and the Western allies had a Germany-first policy. That meant efforts to defeat Germany always took precedence over efforts to defeat Japan. All right, I know I took a detour from today's topic. So let's get back to the Japanese military strategy against America. The Japanese did not want a war against the U.S. However, they wanted to expand southward on mainland Asia as well as so many Pacific islands. Of particular interest was the Dutch East Indies. That was a large colony of over 17,000 islands controlled by the Netherlands and is now the independent country of Indonesia. The Japanese were desperate for oil as well as other raw materials for their war effort. The Dutch East Indies supplied the oil for the Japanese war. The Japanese did not believe that America would sit idly by as they conquered a huge empire in the Pacific and Asia. The theory of the Japanese military was to deliver a decisive blow against America's military might in the Pacific at Pearl Harbor and then seek a negotiated peace. The core belief of the Japanese high command was that they would make any victory for the U.S. so costly that Americans would not be able to stomach such a high price in casualties and would negotiate a peace. As I just outlined, the Pearl Harbor attack achieved the opposite result. But the Japanese never lost hope of a negotiated peace with the United States. They knew they could never outright defeat America militarily. So the theory was to make any American conquest of Japan so bloody and so terrible that the American people would lose their will to fight and would be willing to negotiate peace terms that the Japanese found acceptable. The Japanese wanted to keep the territories they conquered. They were hoping that the Americans would be so fed up with the hundreds of thousands of casualties that the U.S. would just quit and allow Japan to keep its vast new empire. Keeping that ultimate goal in mind, the actions of the Japanese in the summer of 1945 seem more rational. 
By 1945, the Japanese government understood that they could not keep all of their conquered territories, but they were hoping that they could keep at least some of their occupied colonies. That is why the Japanese continued to fight and to make the war bloodier and bloodier on the Americans. They would fight to the last man. The best example of that attitude was the kamikaze attacks. In case you are unfamiliar with that term, kamikaze missions consisted of poorly trained pilots put into airplanes on a one-way mission. The pilots were supposed to crash their planes into American naval ships. Clearly, the pilots would be killed on impact, and there was hope that they could sink or severely damage American naval vessels. This was a terror campaign designed to convince Americans that the Japanese would never surrender, that they would fight to the last man, and that the Americans should give up on trying to conquer Japan. Another example of Japan's strategy to convince the U.S. to accept a negotiated peace was the way individual Japanese soldiers fought to the death rather than being captured alive. A case in point is the Battle of Tarawa. That is an atoll in the Gilbert Islands located in the Central Pacific. Tarawa was a Japanese outpost. The U.S. invaded in November 1943. The Japanese had approximately 4,400 soldiers defending Tarawa. Only 17 were captured alive. Think about that. Only 17 out of 4,400 soldiers were captured alive. The rest fought to the death. And this wasn't an isolated incident. In most battles between the Americans and Japanese in World War II, most of the Japanese fought to the death rather than being captured. I'm not saying that the individual Japanese soldiers fought to the death because of some grand strategy by the Japanese high command. To be clear, individual soldiers fought to the death to avoid the shame of surrender. It was considered a sense of honor to refuse to surrender. Japanese soldiers believed in Bushido. That was the code of conduct for Japan's warrior class. Bushido stressed unquestioning loyalty and obedience and valuing honor above life. That's why individuals fought to the death rather than surrender. But this mindset of the individual Japanese soldier fit perfectly within the strategic goals of the Japanese high command. The military planners in Tokyo understood that such fanaticism might make the soft Americans think that the price of victory was too high and so give in to the Japanese demands as the price for peace. When people ask whether the atomic bombs were necessary, we must look at the alternatives. The first alternative was to present a demonstration of the atomic bomb. The argument presented for that goes as follows. Number one, the U.S. should have invited representatives of Japan to a deserted island to witness an explosion of the atomic bomb. Number two, after they saw the incredible power of a nuclear device, the U.S. would then give an ultimatum for surrender. Otherwise, the U.S. would start dropping these bombs on Japanese cities. Would this have worked? Maybe, maybe not. I'm of the opinion that it would not have convinced the Japanese to surrender. Why do I say that? As I outlined in part one of this podcast episode, most of the military 
and half of the Supreme Council of the Japanese government did not want to surrender after two atomic bombs were dropped on Japanese cities. As you will recall from part one of this episode, it took the intervention of Emperor Hirohito to break the government deadlock and to convince the military that it was time to surrender. If the annihilation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki by atomic weapons did not convince the military, as well as the hardliners in the Supreme Council to surrender, why would a demonstration on a deserted island convince them to give up fighting? Other arguments that have been presented against demonstrating the atomic bomb to the Japanese before using it on actual cities are, number one, what if the bomb didn't work? There had only been one test in New Mexico on July 16, 1945. Robert Oppenheimer and his crew in Los Alamos certainly believed that the other bombs would work, but they were not certain. The science and engineering in these bombs were very new. The argument is that if the bomb did not work, the Japanese may have hardened their position. Who knows? Argument two. Some who have argued against a demonstration of the atomic bomb believe that it might have been seen as a sign of weakness by Japanese hardliners. We don't know how they would have viewed such a demonstration, even if it was successful. However, we do know that the Japanese viewed Americans who surrendered as contemptible. So maybe the people that present this argument are right, that the Japanese would have viewed the Americans as being soft by not using this terrible weapon. The third argument against a demonstration was that America had only two atomic bombs in August of 1945. If the demonstration did not cause the Japanese to surrender, the U.S. would have only one atomic bomb ready to drop on Japan. This argument seems weak to me since the man in charge of the Manhattan Project, General Leslie Groves, expected to have another atomic weapon ready by approximately August 17 to 19. It was also believed that three more atomic bombs would be ready in September. Those three arguments I just outlined have been posed by other people. I don't find them that convincing. But as I stated earlier, I still don't think a demonstration would have convinced the Japanese government and military to surrender. Obviously, this is only speculation. However, we do know what happened in real life. Even the actual destruction of two entire cities with the deaths of well over 120,000 people, along with the intervention of the enormous Soviet army, the government was split as to whether or not to surrender. And parts of the military wished to continue, and some even tried to stage a coup to continue fighting. Okay, so option one was a demonstration. Option two, as an alternative to dropping the atomic bombs on Japanese cities, was to try to negotiate a peace. Some people argue that the Japanese refused to end the war because of American insistence on unconditional surrender. Time for a little background. In January 1943, at the Casablanca Conference, held in what was then a city in French Morocco, Africa, President Roosevelt met with British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. FDR announced to the world press that it would be the policy of the Allies to fight until the Axis forces surrendered unconditionally. The arguments for and against a policy of unconditional surrender could probably be an entire podcast episode. 
But to sum things up briefly, the main reasons for a strategy of unconditional surrender were the following. Number one, Joseph Stalin was very suspicious of the Americans and the British and worried that the Western Allies would make a separate deal with the Germans. Announcing that the U.S. and U.K. were fighting through to unconditional surrender was a way of keeping the Soviets fighting. And this was extremely important since approximately 80% of all German casualties in World War II were suffered on the Eastern Front against the Red Army. Imagine trying to defeat the Nazi war machine without the Soviets sacrificing approximately 24 million people in their life and death struggle against Germany. Number two, unconditional surrender was also a way to keep up public morale in the U.S. and Britain. Roosevelt and Churchill were leading democracies and had to keep the people willing to fight. It's easier to tell the populace that we're fighting through to absolute victory than to say, well, we're fighting until we think we can get a reasonable peace. Number three, the main reason for unconditional surrender is that the U.S. and Britain were trying to avoid what happened at the end of World War I. In the fall of 1918, Germany was clearly defeated and surrendered to the U.S., Britain, and France. But since there was never an occupation of Germany at the end of World War I, a lot of Germans believed that they did not really lose that war. This led to a lot of resentment, which boiled up for the next 20 years and caused World War II. I am of the opinion that unconditional surrender may not have been perfect, but overall, it was a good policy. Look at the way the Allies completely remade what eventually became West Germany. Unfortunately, the Soviets were occupying the eastern third of the country and set up the incredibly repressive regime of the communist East Germany. More importantly for the subject of today's episode, look at how the American occupation of Japan completely remade Japanese society. Before 1945, Japan was a militaristic country that was a threat to its neighbors and was also a repressive nation with very limited civil rights and women had basically no rights at all. Since World War II, Japan has been one of the wealthiest and politically healthiest countries in the world. That would not have happened without the American occupation. Some people say that the only condition necessary for a negotiated peace was advising the Japanese that they could keep the emperor. I have three arguments against that. Number one, the people who make this argument always place all the blame on the United States for not making this offer to the Japanese. What about the Japanese themselves? The Japanese never made an offer to the U.S. that they would be willing to surrender provided they could keep the emperor. Really, if that was the case, that they were willing to end the war upon an assurance that the emperor would remain in place, the Japanese government could have said so, but they didn't. As I explained in part one of this episode, the Japanese only made such an offer after the two atomic bombs and the Soviets' entry into the war. It's my opinion that prior to August 10, 1945, the Japanese did not offer to surrender on the sole condition of keeping their emperor was because they had not reached that point. They were not willing to give up all their territorial gains or to have their entire society revised, even if they could keep the emperor. As I outlined in part one of this episode, the Japanese only reached that point 
after the two atomic bombs had been dropped and the Soviet Union had attacked the Japanese army. Argument number two against people who claimed that the only condition necessary for a negotiated peace was advising the Japanese that they could keep the emperor. There had to be an occupation of Japan and a complete revision of their entire society from top to bottom. There is no way that the Japanese would have agreed to that. The Japanese are much better off under their new constitution after World War II, and the world is better off. Argument number three. There is no evidence that the Japanese were willing to surrender on the condition that Emperor Hirohito was allowed to remain simply as a ceremonial figure like the British king or queen. To be clear, that is what happened to the position of the emperor after the American occupation starting in September 1945. But when the Japanese were talking about keeping their emperor, they meant that they wanted to keep the imperial system. They wanted to keep their system of government and their social structure. The U.S. and its allies would have been crazy to agree to such conditions. People who make this argument that the U.S. should have told the Japanese that they could keep their emperor, meaning the imperial system, never consider that. Think of it this way. If before D-Day, the Germans had made an offer to the U.S. and Britain that they would surrender, provided that they could keep Hitler as Fuhrer and keep the Nazi form of government, does anybody think that would have been a good idea and that the Western allies should have accepted such an offer? I'm not saying Emperor Hirohito is the equivalent of Hitler, but he was the head of a terrible regime. So, why would the U.S. and its allies agree to keep in place a Japanese government which had caused over 20 million deaths in an unjustified war along with atrocities such as the rape of Nanking? And in case you were unfamiliar with that term, that references the massacre of somewhere between 200,000 and 300,000 civilians in Nanking, China, after the Japanese had already conquered the city. The point is this. If the Japanese said that they were willing to surrender with only one simple condition, that Hirohito not be tried as a war criminal, but simply remain as a ceremonial figurehead, and that the Allies could occupy Japan and have unfettered rights to reconstitute all of Japanese society, America and its allies would certainly have said yes, but the Japanese would never consider such conditions. Okay, so getting back to alternatives to using the atomic bombs on Japanese cities. Option number three was to proceed with the naval blockade and keep attacking the Japanese home islands with conventional bombing raids. People who argue in favor of this point out that Japan could not have lasted too much longer, especially now that the Soviets had entered the war. But how long could Japan last? It's true that they were running out of food and all other types of supplies for a functioning society. But would they surrender? I'm of the opinion that the Japanese would not surrender without an invasion of the home islands. In the summer of 1945, the Japanese government and military were training the populace, including women, children, and old men, for hand-to-hand -hand fighting. They were giving these civilians sharpened sticks and teaching them how to sacrifice themselves by trying to kill any invading Americans. 
But more importantly, let's consider whether this waiting policy by the U.S. would have been beneficial for either side. By the beginning of August 1945, Americans were still fighting and dying every day in the Pacific Theater. I cannot find accurate figures for American casualties in the Pacific War after the fighting on Okinawa concluded. But at least one source claims that Allied casualties, which means American, British, Chinese, and Soviet military personnel, were averaging approximately 7,000 per week in August 1945. If that's true, that is a significant figure. It's easy to state in the abstract, why not just wait and see? It's harder when you think of 7,000 casualties a week for the Allies. And that's not considering the Japanese losses. People don't like to think about politics when considering the use of the atomic bomb, but what would have been the outcry of the American people if they discovered that the U.S. had atomic weapons which might have ended the war in August 1945, but Harry Truman and his government allowed the war to drag on, causing who knows how many American casualties. It's the nature of a democracy. The president has to consider such realities. And how about the Japanese? It is probable that the Japanese would have lost a lot more military and civilian lives under such a policy. If we're talking about waiting until the Japanese literally starved, and I do mean starved, how many thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives would have been lost by starvation and the resulting disease? You also have to consider that if the atomic bombs were not dropped and the U.S. took a waiting policy, America would have continued with the conventional bombing raids. That meant firebombing of Japanese cities with napalm, which probably would have killed many more people than the two atomic weapons. As I outlined in part one of this episode, the tremendous firestorms caused by so much napalm dropped on Japanese cities was a horror equivalent to the atomic blasts. Again, I am not diminishing the terrible results of the two atomic explosions. I'm just pointing out that the devastation of napalm firestorms caused their own type of hell on Earth. And let's not forget about the largest source of Japanese deaths if the war continued past August 1945, the Red Army. We know what did happen in the fighting between the Soviets and the Japanese just for a few weeks beginning August 9, 1945. The Soviets claimed that they killed 84,000 Japanese soldiers and captured 594,000. The Japanese had approximately 800,000 men in Manchuria when the Soviets attacked and another approximately 250,000 soldiers in Korea at that time. What would have been the death and injured totals if the war between the Soviets and Japanese continued for many months? And in fighting with the USSR, the Japanese faced another cruel factor. Even if their soldiers survived and then were captured by the Red Army, a large percentage of them would not have returned. When the war ended, the Soviets did not immediately release their German or Japanese prisoners of war. They put them to work in labor camps. The ones that survived were eventually released. And one last issue to consider with a policy of not dropping the atom bombs and not invading the home islands but just waiting, the war with the Chinese. Most Japanese casualties in World War II were suffered in fighting on the Asian mainland against the Chinese. 
The official death toll for Japanese soldiers killed in China between 1937 and 1945 is 480,000. That's almost half a million men. Possibly tens of thousands of Japanese would have died needlessly in China if the war continued until the Japanese surrendered due to a lack of food and supplies. One other sub-argument presented by people who claim that the U.S. should have waited and not dropped the atomic bombs or invaded the Japanese home islands is the allegation that the Soviet entry into the Pacific War was the primary reason for Emperor Hirohito to step in and end the war in August 1945. I do not buy that argument. As I have explained several times, the Supreme Council was deadlocked 3-3 three to three on the question of surrender even after the Soviet entry into the war and the two atomic bombs. The surrender only occurred when it did because the emperor got involved and broke the tie. What was the reason why the emperor told his government to surrender? In his statements at the time, Hirohito did not mention the Soviet entry into the war as a basis for his willingness to accept surrender. He did state that he did not believe the Japanese could defend the home islands from an American invasion and also worried about a rebellion of the Japanese populace suffering from continued bombings by napalm weapons and atomic bombs. And in his famous recorded speech, which was broadcast to the entire Japanese nation on August 15, 1945, Hirohito did not mention the Soviets, but he did tell his people, the enemy has begun to employ a new and most cruel bomb, the power of which to do damage is, indeed, incalculable, taking the toll of many innocent lives. Should we continue to fight, not only would it result in an ultimate collapse and obliteration of the Japanese nation, but also it would lead to the total extinction of human civilization. I think that's a pretty compelling argument, that it was the two atomic bombs which convinced the emperor to surrender. This brings us to option four of the alternatives to the use of the atomic weapons, an actual invasion of the Japanese home islands. An invasion of Japan was already planned. It was called Operation Downfall. This was not a theoretical exercise. Actual plans for the invasion of the home islands had been prepared by early July 1945. This operation was going to dwarf the Allied invasion of Normandy on D-Day. The first stage of the invasion was set for November 1, 1945. Operation Downfall was actually split into two parts. The first was called Operation Olympic, with the invasion of the southernmost of the four primary Japanese home islands, Kyushu. This would later be followed in early 1946 by an invasion of the main island of Honshu called Operation Coronet. There are wildly diverse estimates about American casualties if the U.S. invaded the Japanese home islands. The estimates are based upon the casualty figures for the last two island invasions before August 1945, Iwo Jima and Okinawa. The casualty figures for Iwo Jima, approximately 70,000 U.S. Marines invaded that island and nearly 7,000 were killed. That means one-tenth of the Marines died on that island. Another 20,000 Marines were wounded. In addition, approximately 22,000 Japanese died on Iwo Jima. How about the Battle of Okinawa? That island was considered part of Japan, so the fighting there was very fierce. 
It was the bloodiest battle in the Pacific during World War II. In the Battle of Okinawa, more than 12,000 U.S. soldiers, sailors, and Marines died. Part of this high casualty rate was due to the large amount of kamikaze attacks. 149 Allied ships were hit or sunk by kamikazes during the Battle of Okinawa. More than 100,000 Japanese died during the Battle of Okinawa from April 1 through June 22, 1945. That is a staggering amount. To put that into perspective, in approximately a decade of fighting in Vietnam, the U.S. suffered over 58,000 deaths. That is a tremendous sacrifice of life. But the Japanese were willing to suffer almost twice as many deaths in less than three months of fighting on Okinawa. How many casualties would the Japanese be willing to suffer defending the four main home islands? Some of those estimates for Allied casualties to conquer the Japanese home islands go as high as one million deaths. My opinion is that estimate is extremely exaggerated. Probably a more realistic estimate of American casualties was somewhere between 200,000 to 300,000 deaths. Obviously, even that lower estimate of American lives lost would be horrific. And let's put that figure into perspective. Total American deaths in all of World War II, including Europe, the Pacific, Africa, Asia, everywhere, was approximately 420,000 dead Americans. So an invasion of Japan would increase the American death toll in World War II by another 50 to 75%. And let's not just look at this from an American viewpoint. America's allies were also suffering casualties on a daily basis. How many more thousands of Chinese, Soviets, and British soldiers would have been lost as fighting continued throughout the Asian mainland? And what would be the death rate among the Japanese military as well as civilians? The Japanese were saving thousands of planes as well as aviation fuel so they could do mass kamikaze attacks on U.S. forces when the Americans invaded the home islands. As I explained earlier, the entire populace of Japan was being trained for hand-to-hand -hand combat to resist any invasion. The willingness to die instead of surrender combined with the overwhelming military forces of the United States and its allies, would have resulted in well over a million Japanese deaths from an invasion of the home islands. Of course, the loss of human life has to be the primary concern, but a secondary factor would have been the utter destruction of most of Japan. An invasion could have destroyed Japan as a country for decades. I am not arguing that atomic weapons are not evil. Those of us who grew up during the Cold War remember the insane air raid drills in the 1960s in case the Soviets launched a nuclear attack on America. We would hear an air raid alarm and be sent into the basement of our grade schools and cover our heads with our hands like that was somehow going to save us. My main point of this episode is that this is not a black and white issue. What would you have done if you were in Harry Truman's position in the summer of 1945? If you did not use those two atomic bombs and the war continued for months or a year or so, and thousands 
or even hundreds of thousands of Americans were killed, and possibly a million or more Japanese were also killed, would you be sure that you did the right thing? At the time of the dropping of the atom bombs, most Americans agreed with the decision. I know my father did. As a member of the U.S. Army, he fought the Nazis in Africa, Sicily, and Italy. After the Germans surrendered, the American High Command was making plans for transferring troops from Europe to the Pacific for the invasion of Japan. My dad told me that he and every other American soldier in Europe was very happy when Japan surrendered and they didn't care how this came about. Those GIs were just happy that they were not going to have to fight a second war in the Pacific. There was actually a book on the subject called Thank God for the Atom Bomb. It was written by an American historian named Paul Fusell who had fought in Europe in World War II. Do the feelings of people like that author or my father justify the horrors of atomic bombs? I'm not saying they automatically do, but they are certainly points to consider. It's very easy for those of us who did not face the horrors of combat to say that more American or allied lives should have been sacrificed for the mere possibility of surrender without the use of nuclear weapons. It is a lot more difficult to advocate such positions if you are personally doing the fighting. This attitude was expressed in a letter home in the fall of 1943 from a young Navy lieutenant who was in the midst of combat in the Pacific. Please excuse the language. Anyway, that naval officer said, When I read that we will fight the Japs for years if necessary and will sacrifice hundreds of thousands if we must, I always like to check from where he's talking. It's seldom from out here. That naval lieutenant was John F. Kennedy. One other point to consider is whether the Japanese were better off because of the use of the two atomic bombs. I know your first reaction is that's an insane statement. Obviously, the 100 to 150,000 people who suffered nuclear deaths were not better off. I'm talking about Japan as a nation in the long run. Some have made the argument that the mindset of the Japanese would not allow them to surrender no matter how bad their military situation deteriorated. The people who present that argument say that the shock of the atomic weapons being so extraordinary allowed the psyche of the Japanese government to say that this was a new, almost science fiction situation in which they could surrender without being dishonored. Frankly, who knows? But if those two bombs did cause Japan to surrender in August 1945, then a case can be made that Japan was better off for the following reasons. Number one, it avoided hundreds of thousands or possibly well over a million more Japanese deaths if they continued to fight. Number two, if the fighting dragged on until 1946, would Japan have been jointly occupied by the Soviets as well as the Americans. This is what happened in Germany. This is what happened in Korea. The people of East Germany suffered under one of the most repressive regimes in history for 44 years. The people in North Korea are still suffering under the insane government of the communist Kim family. If the Soviets occupied half of Japan, would Japan have suffered the fate of North Korea or East Germany? 
Another question raised about the use of the atomic weapons was whether or not the second bomb was necessary. The view of the American military and government leaders was to convince the Japanese that the United States had an endless supply and would drop these bombs every few days. The argument was that dropping only one bomb might lead the Japanese to presume that the U.S. had only one of these super weapons. I hope that I've outlined for you the facts of the situation as well as the arguments people have presented for and against the use of the atomic bombs. My view is that they were probably necessary. I don't think that the Japanese surrendered only because of the two atomic bombs, but because of the combination of the nuclear weapons and the entry of the Soviet Union into the war. As I've stated many times, atomic weapons are absolutely horrible and it is tragic that they were ever used. Since 1945, all of mankind has lived under the dark shadow of a nuclear holocaust. But World War II was easily the greatest calamity in the history of the world, resulting in over 60 million deaths, as well as many more millions of lives destroyed. The use of the two atomic bombs most likely saved hundreds of thousands, possibly more than a million lives in the long run. In a situation like World War II, political leaders, unfortunately, are faced with such terrible mathematics. If you were in a position of authority, you were trying to end the war as quickly as possible with as few casualties to your side. Political leaders in a position such as the Americans and their allies in the summer of 1945 were literally faced with choosing the lesser of several evils. Dropping atomic bombs, firebombing Japanese cities, invading the Japanese home islands, or literally starving the Japanese to death are all evil choices. The question was, what was the least of these evil options? Well, that's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast, and please like this and my other episodes. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.